You're listening to the Substandard Model. On today's episode, we uncover the suspicious truth behind rainbows. Is it true that batteries bounce more when they're out of charge? <laughs> that wasn't even deliberate. I just coughed. Oh, I thought it was deliberate cough. <laughs> my my mistake. <laughs> it would have been really rude if you'd done that. Okay, are, are um, you ready? My fact is, have you ever heard that thing about how batteries bounce at different heights depending on how charged they are? Okay, I've heard, I know that they're like different weights. And I know that, actually, well, I have heard that because of the liquid inside them. Yes, the liquid inside them. No. First of all, I'd like to say it is a factual thing. There's been a lot of papers on it, surprisingly academic-looking papers on it, with video footage of multiple different batteries at different charges um, dropped at the same time down PVC pipes and rebounding at different heights. I think the thing that determines how much they rebound, if you were to quantify it as a single value, it's the coefficient of restitution that decides how elastically something collides with something else. I think the, the coefficient of restitution is the speed of separation over the speed of collision. So my my immediate question is, if isn't isn't the contents of the battery separated from the user of the battery by a sort of metal shell? Yeah. So then how, how is the metal shell itself? Because that's what's touching the ground, isn't it? Is the metal shell. How is the elasticity of that material changing? I think it's the pressure waves inside of the battery that affect the coefficient of restitution. I see. So, okay. It sort of jiggles around. I, I think the metal shell, although it does provide some rigidity to it, doesn't take the full brunt of the force. It's like a golf ball. Mm-hmm. You know how they design golf balls to have... And actually, the, the chemical produced in batteries is they put it in golf balls to increase the bounce. So, okay, if you break open a golf ball, yeah, it pops. It's really gross. Yeah, it's weird because it's got all that built-up pressure inside of it because it's really squeezed in. Um, but they're surprisingly bouncy for what their surface material is made out of. So, I suppose it's okay. a similar situation with batteries. Um, batteries. <laughs> I'm going to be talking specifically about zinc batteries because it's the one that's referenced most commonly on the internet at least it's the one that i've seen the most studies on so i guess it's the one that i can guarantee that this fact is true for so you've got a a zinc anode and you've got a manganese oxide cathode way that these batteries work i mean the way that batteries chemical batteries work is you you have a chemical reaction going in and going on in the anode and a chemical reaction going on in the cathode and I think if I just get the specific chemical reaction going on here, zinc plus four OH minus goes to zinc hydroxide plus two electrons. Then okay. the zinc hydroxide also dissociates into zinc oxide, water, and then two more OH minuses, which then can get fed back into that zinc originally, right? The key part is those mm-hmm. two electrons because those two electrons travel out of the inside of the battery, which is where the zinc is kept with the hydroxides, travels down the uh, metal sheath. It's like a prong that goes through the center of the battery, hits the back of the battery on the flat end, which is metal, goes through your appliance, then goes back into the front of the battery, which is that dimple. And then it goes Mm -hmm. into the manganese. And the manganese goes yummy electron, eats that. So you get manganese oxide plus an electron and water, goes to, because it's MnO2, one of the O's gets swapped out for an OH. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, so it eats up that electron, and that's how you generate a voltage, because the energy released when it eats up the electron is less than the energy released when the zinc releases the electron. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the anyway, table. Over time, as you discharge a battery, the zinc bit inside the battery turns into zinc oxide. These are non-rechargeable uh-huh. batteries, just as FYI. This is your standard, you know, cylindrical tube AA battery. And the thing about zinc okay. oxide is the way that it forms, it's kind of like snow, snowflakes inside. You get like snowflakes of zinc oxide going out inside of this watery solution. So what affects the coefficient of restitution inside of this golf ball battery is that the zinc metal is now turning into zinc oxide crystal with water around it. Mm-hmm. And that means that the coefficient of restitution is now higher, which means that it's has a more elastic collision with the floor uh-huh. to give you more data a fully charged battery has a coefficient of restitution they said about 0.2 then a fully discharged battery has a coefficient of restitution of 0.6 to 0.7 and and the coefficient of restitution it's this decimal it's it's a, it's out of one if you had a fully elastic collision you'd get a coefficient of restitution of one because the velocity of impact going towards the impact is equal to the velocity coming out. So the ratio of the two velocities is one. So actually, it conserves a lot of energy, a discharge battery. So it's actually a, it's a surprisingly bouncy item, a discharge battery. What's also interesting is that it's not a linear trend. So the more you discharge a battery, it doesn't increase linearly uh, the coefficient of restitution. What you see actually is it's flattening out, it's plateauing. So you actually get mm-hmm. a coefficient of restitution of about 0.6 at about 50% discharged. Which okay. is interesting because that means that the extra zinc that gets used up in the second, in the latter half of the discharge process doesn't affect the crystal structure to the extent that it affects the coefficient of restitution a lot. Questions? So this, so this, oh, does this only work with zinc batteries? Uh, no, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't work with any other chemical batteries where you have a disproportionation reaction, which affects the chemical structure of the thing inside okay. the battery. Well, it's one of those facts, like, there are some, I th- I'd say 50% of bullshit in terms, like, you know, like those, you know, those kind of facts that you hear, which can't be true. 50% of them just are true. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I think, I, I don't think I, I was ever more surprised than when I heard that, you know, when people tell you that if you put car keys up to your head, it makes their range extend. I used to, I, my, I think one of my friends used to say that, and I used to, like, bully them because I was like, of course it doesn't. It actually does work. What does it do again? It's the water in your brain. It, it has some sort of interference with the water enhancing, in your brain. And enhancing the spe- the, the your spectrum, brain is yeah. a satellite dish. You're, well, I mean, it kind of ignores the rest of your brain. It only cares about the water. So it's not... Yeah, your brain basically is a satellite dish. So and you, it probably you won't give you a jug cancer. of water. Yeah, that's, that too. But your brain has a lot of water in it. So a mm. jug of water would work. jug of water would work. Do you know I ate pig's brain on holiday? What? It was a wait, wait. Did you eat a Hungary. whole pig's brain? No, no. It was a dish in Hungary. Fried swells of pig brain. It sort of looked like calamari, only it's absolutely no texture. It's like chocolate mousse levels of texture. It's just Oh, mush. my God. I've you dissected could... a brain before, and it's like dissecting a smoothie. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely impossible. It's disgu- It's horrible. There's a thin film of fleshy cling film that goes around your brain. Once you release no, the pressure sure of the fleshy it's... cling film, it just comes out as a smoothie. <laughs> it, is, it is just good. No, but if you see a human brain being dissected... There was this really creepy video we had to watch when we were doing anatomy when, when there's this guy who, who had to get a whole human brain preserved in formaldehyde 
and you when you when you get those ones like those sort of preserved ones they're really tough like you can actually yeah. slice them properly like yeah. broccoli thanks formaldehyde um, because formaldehyde does something like funny broccoli really and other things you could slice no but it looks like i said broccoli because when you cut down the middle of the brain stem you know when you cut a mushroom and you're cutting the sides of the mushroom and then suddenly you get to the stem of the mushroom and you, you face a dilemma where you're wondering at what point you should you should begin the stem incorporating it into your slices mm. you know and then there's a, the few sections of mushroom where the stem is is subtended mm. and you have the stem cross section and you know, that's what happens with the brain because you've got the brain stem so there's the guy and he's cutting he's cutting and he's slicing off bits of the brain stem and he's not quite and then eventually you've got the whole brain stem in there and that's the good stuff and it, that's, that it reminded me of a broccoli or a mushroom because the brainstem is really where it's all going on. Most of your, most of the interesting stuff in your brain is happening in a really, really small area. <laughs> and the rest is just goo. I, on the topic of mushrooms, I saw, I saw a clip from your favorite man, Joe Rogan. He was talking he, to this guy who's an man. expert on portobello mushrooms. And then what? Joe, Joe asked the question, are there any negative effects of portobello mushrooms? And the guy said, this is an explosive area of conversation, and that puts my life in danger. So I reserve the right not to answer your question. <laughs> that puts There's a lot of money around portobello mushrooms. So if you actually do any sort of research into <laughs> negative effects of food and potential health issues, there's a fucking portobello mushroom mafia who will come, come and on. kill you. Any negative effects to Parma ham? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> come on. Portobello, there's so portobello mushrooms are not even like the first mushroom I go to when I'm mushrooming. I, I'm a chestnut man. But what do you mean any negative effects? Like, like they're not going to kill you. Like, like we've eaten, I've eaten portobello mushrooms, well, and I'm not dead. The most common one was the carcinogenic property of agarotines present in the portobello mushroom, Ooh. a substance that can cause cancer. I feel like every substance causes cancer, and we should just calm down. Portobello mushrooms can be made into hydrazine. Fucking one chemical reaction away from making hydrazine rocket fuel. Yeah, but then but you say that, but then you watch those videos where people make, like, you know, hot sauce out of gloves, and it's like, well, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, what, what, you're one chemical reaction away from a lot of explosives in general. Yeah. I mean, you're quite explosive if you put you under immense gravitational pressure in the heart of the star. Okay, but the, yeah. Okay, okay. I'll accept that. I made my grandma into an explosive, the fuel of my new fusion reactor. What are you reading now? Fusion. <laughs> Enriched grandma material. That's a new one. Batteries bounce high. That's what, that's what we're here for. Yeah. Twice as high, pretty much. I mean, Probably that's kind of an experiment. battery is going to bounce twice as high as an under. Are they bouncing battery. them on the air end? And does huh? it matter if it's positive or negative? Are they bouncing them on the on the right term on the same terminal each time? Ooh, or good they, question. Didn't think about. Or is, is it on the side? I no, think, I the thing, the thing that makes them bounce isn't the side. I think it'll be the same on both ends. Is my answer to that because it's it's to do with the internal contents. Because the majority of like the center of the battery is made from zinc initially, and then when it's depleted, it's made majority from zinc oxide. Uh, okay. Okay. I have one last stupid question. Can you explain to me whether? Double and triple A have a meaningful chemical difference, or if it's just different amounts of the same stuff? That's a good question. Where does the naming of double and triple A, and what the fuck is double A? Who chose that? Double, yeah. It's reels really, really arbitrary. I think it's, it's not even size difference. It's the, it's the capacity of the battery. So if you made the battery of a super high capacity material, you could have a double A that's smaller than a triple A. 
But the thing is, they're all roughly made of the same material, so increasing the capacity increases the size. So it's just AA's got a larger capacity in milliamp hours than an AAA battery. That will do. That's a good explanation. But where's the name? The original efforts to name the confusing array of batteries was simple. A, B, C, and D, etc., with A being the smallest battery they had at the time. Sadly, very soon after someone came up with a new, smaller battery than battery A, which they then named AA, and then someone invented an even smaller battery, which they then named AAA, and today we have quadruple A batteries. Quadruple A batteries? We also have half AA and four-fifths AA. Do we have A batteries? No, but you have D batteries as well, which are bigger than C batteries, B batteries, and A batteries. So it's a, it's, that... it's a situation of A of A. I suppose you could have ABA batteries. ABA batteries. That's incredible. ABBA batteries. ABBA. I think think they're all just AAA now. It's just nowadays, it's just everyone works with AAA because everything's been made for AAA batteries now. It's one of those like relics of of history where it started way and then no one changed it. So it just became a sort of weird name. A fact of the future, you know? One one day that would be interesting. Now it's just sort of slightly annoying. We have to buy different batteries for our remote and our light bulb. Yeah, I mean, it started with battery D, battery C, battery B, and battery A, with A the smallest. And then there was a smaller one, so we call that AA. And then a smaller one, which we called AAA. And a smaller one, which we called (laughs) AAA. A star. There was an opportunity for that, but they decided AAA. Ah! <laughs> and we've all seen that. That's picture. how you pronounce it. Ah, ah! <laughs> it's just so small. <laughs> and then they just hand you nothing. This minuscule battery that is not even visible to the eye. Yeah, batteries can be better in this day and age. They should be. We should be telling our kids. Oh, I used to use batteries, and they'll be like, really. You didn't just charge them from the the sun or the ether. No, no, I I used to actually put chunk little spheres of little cylinders of energy into the things I wanted to have energy. I used to put them in physically. Dad? And we, we, Dad, were you, you okay? I used to love the, the feel of a battery, you know. And they'll bring them back like vinyl. They'll have the whole battery resurgence. Right. And the little cases on the back of the remotes that you could, like, peel off, like, like pull off and on again. Yeah. With a little squeezy squeezy tab. They'll bring those back. The squeezy tab. They'll bring back the squeezy tab. Once batteries are gone, tab. they'll miss the squeezy tab. Mark my words, they'll miss the squeezy tab. I think there's more to life than the squeezy tab, Sam. You'll find something else. No, no, no. The sad moment is when you have to put tape over the squeezy tab because it's lost its squeeze. And now forever you've just got some... You've lost your your squeezy, your squeezy play tab. <laughs> Such a sad moment. That's some relatable content. Should we go to the next fact? I've got a saga. I've got a saga for you, Henry. Oh, God. It's a long one. I, I'm going to, throughout this fact, prove the connection of, um, of Pink Floyd to the Illuminati. That's what I'm going to do. First of all, the Illuminati doesn't exist. Second of all, Pink Floyd doesn't First, exist. <laughs> I think you'll find that Pink Floyd existed for a bit. Bro, if, and... Pink, Floyd, if Pink Floyd exists, pigs fly. <laughs> That's, That's a high-end joke. I've got that, that is... That is a joke. That is a that is extraordinary. That is extraordinary levels of layers. Oh, that's another one for the train. Yeah. Well, I mean, they would love to hear you say that. That shows a deep and intimate knowledge of the 
of the the tour the touring decorations of Pink Floyd. But I'm not talking about Animals, their 1979 masterpiece. I'm talking about probably their most famous album. Do you know what that album is? I'm going to guess you Dark do. Side of the Moon. It's Dark Side of the Moon. Dark Side of the Moon is their most famous album. Not only their most famous album, not only potentially the most famous album in rock history, but the most famous and iconic album cover, Henry. Yes. Do you see where I'm going with this? I'm going to Google the Dark Side of the, the Moon. The album cover of, of Dark's Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon has been, has been a, 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 a staple. A staple. Shut up. It's been a staple of teach, teach. No, no, I don't want you spoiling anything. Okay, you keep your mouth shut. It's been a staple of T-shirts, you know, university dorms, caps, all sorts for many years because it looks so cool. And what is it? It's a little triangle, a transparent triangle. One side of the triangle, you see, you see a beam of light, and that beam of light is is split into multiple colors as it passes through the triangle, uh, and then sort of turns at the end people look at that and they think it's pretty they don't know what it is they don't know what's going on they just think it's a pretty triangle well there's a bunch of science behind it so first of all we should talk about diffraction aka dispersion what's going on there so i'm going to keep this bit simple when a beam of white light and white light is is white because it, it contains all of the frequencies together right and when it enters something that has a different refractive index that light will change its speed and if it's entering at an angle, that light will change its speed in, a, in such a way that causes it to essentially bend. The classic analogy is when you're, you're driving a lawnmower onto the grass, one side of the, uh, the wheels hit the grass first, slow down, and that causes the other side moving quicker to cover a greater distance, and you do a little turn. Uh, it's, it's just a classic bit of refraction. That's, that's some basic science. The thing that makes the white light turn into multiple colors is the simple fact that different wavelengths of light will refract at greater angles than other wavelengths of light. And Henry, can you explain, can you explain why that might be? Uh, <clears throat> uh, because they slow down by different amounts. They slow down by different amounts. Why is that? Uh, because the... I mean, what what explanation do you want? I, want? I want the simplest one. I want, one reference, I want it to reference refractive index please oh a refractive index okay yes because they have different refractive indexes with the light uh we did we did this in the mirage episode previously uh where light wants to go from point a to point b not in straight lines but rather via any route so long as that route is the fastest possible route and, and the light takes the shortest amount of time to go from point a to point b so 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 when you hit a boundary between two different thicknesses of material where light travels slower in one material and faster in the other material it chooses to travel from point a to point b such that it its route goes at specific angles uh through both of those materials so that it takes the shortest amount of time but with different frequencies of light different frequencies of light oscillate at different speeds and so the the speed at which the electric field of the light moves back and forth is different for different colors (sighs) And so if you, okay, have, yeah. if you have the electric field moving back and forth really rapidly, the way that it interacts with the electric fields of the electrons in the material that it's passing through varies. I think that's simple enough. And so yeah. when, when you get a resultant wave with the electric fields of the electrons and the electric field of the light, the resultant wave has different wavelengths, which because the frequency doesn't change when you change the refractive index, you end up with different relative speeds of different colors of light which means that sure. 
because it has to take the shortest possible route, the angle at which it will take will be different for different colors of light, which means that when you put white light through a triangle, you get all sorts of different colors of light because they're separated out according to their color. Okie dokie. That's, that's, that's cool. Yeah. They basically, you know, when white light, which contains all the colors, while they hit a triangle, you know, the, the lawnmower hits the grass, different colors of light are traveling at different speeds. The different speed that they're traveling affects something called the refractive index. The refractive index is part of the equation that tells you what angle you're reflecting at. Therefore, different colors can be separated out. Now, that's what you're seeing on the logo. That's what you're seeing on the album. Now, what you're not seeing is that this actually has an application which you might be aware of. Now, the triangle isn't the only place this happens. The triangle represents a prism, which is a glass, a glass prism. We can make a prism and we can make white light turn into multiple colors. But there are prisms in nature. And obviously, one of the prisms that we might know is a raindrop. A raindrop is an excellent example of a prism because as it's falling, as a raindrop is falling, it forms a sort of compressed disc shape. As light travels from the air to the water, that, that acts as the boundary between the, you know, the air and the triangle. It's the same thing. So while I will enter at an angle, split into different colors, and voila. Now, the, this is going to end up causing a rainbow. But we haven't created a rainbow yet, because an extra thing has to happen. The light hits the droplet. It turns into different colors, and then it continues on and hits the back of the droplet. Once it's hit the back of the droplet, it reflects backwards out to where it came from. So it comes in a triangle. It comes in, reflects into different colors, hits the back, and reflects out from where it came. So you've got a white light coming in, and you've got colored light coming out. And that's why you can look at the sky and you can see a rainbow, right? You've got white light turning into different colors. That's the basic, the basic physics of a rainbow. And I'm going to talk a bit more about I... some of the weird different kinds of rainbows you can get. Yeah, you, you want to say something? You're going to talk about different kinds of rainbows. I'm just going to talk yeah, about yeah, secondary some... rainbows. That's a, I'm, I was going to... Yeah, right, so let me join with secondary rainbows. rainbows. So sometimes you rainbows. see two rainbows sitting on top of each other. Uh, the really interesting yes. thing about that is that the primary rainbow, or the, the more prominent and brighter rainbow um, that you see, is is arranged in the colours Roy G. Biv, let's say. It's oh, going from top to it. bottom of Roy it. G. Biv. And the secondary rainbow is reflected. It goes from... <laughs> it goes rib... Right, that's the one. It's the it's the opposite of Roy G. Biv. The colors are in a different order. Yeah. They're in the opposite order. Vain in battle gave York of Richard. That's and that's because the secondary rainbow is produced from a double reflection inside of the light inside of the raindrop. So the light goes in, reflects once, reflects twice, and then comes out of the raindrop. Wow, why does that? Yes, that's true. But what? Why? Why? You got to what? What? How does that lead to the colors being uh, flipped, Henry? Uh, because they cross over each other during the reflection, no? But my question would be, so the, the way that the, there's a reason that you only see half of a rainbow, right? You only ever see it as an arc. A rainbow is actually a circle, right? It should be a circle. It should form as a circle. But the rainbow forms around something called an antisolar point. Now, the antisolar point, if you imagine the sun in the sky and you draw a line from the sun directly down into the ground, that is the antisolar point. The antisolar point is the opposite of wherever the sun is. So if the sun is on the other side of the earth, the antisolar point is in the sky above you. And if the sun's in the sky above you, the antisolar point, well, for you, is directly beneath you. Antisolar point is the opposite of where the sun is. And a rainbow right. forms a circle with a radius around the antisolar point. So when it's daytime, you'll never see half a rainbow. That's important to know. 
Now, that happens because obviously the light is coming in from the sun and being reflected in the same direction as the sun, which means you have to be looking in that direction in order to see the rainbow. If you look towards the sun, you're not getting the reflected light because the light has been turned away from in the opposite direction. The light is right. coming from the sun and bouncing. So you can only see it if you're looking away from the sun. Now, when it bounces again, so because it is, as you said, a double reflection from inside the raindrop, right? It bounces yeah. off the back, bounces off the front again and comes out the back. So it's actually not centered on the antisolar point because it's bounced twice. It's actually centered around the sun. So now you might ask, okay, so it's centered around the sun, meaning it's a circle that forms with a radius around the yeah. sun. And that's why there's why no is... replicons on the secondary rainbow, because they're burning in the sun. Obviously, there are no replicons around the secondary rainbow. Well, there are. There, there are sort of, you know, stiffened, stiffened corpses of leprechauns around the secondary <laughs> rainbow. But more interestingly, you, you might be wondering, okay, well, if let's go, I hear you, Sam. If a secondary rainbow is centered around the sun, why is it that it forms in the same place as the primary rainbow, because the secondary rainbow is like a little second rainbow just above it. How come it's in the same place? We're seeing the bottom well, of the secondary rainbow. Sorry? We're seeing the bottom of the secondary rainbow, because the sun's light comes into the raindrop from the bottom, and then it no. reflects twice, and then it comes in a downwards arc to our eyes, which is the opposite of what you see for a primary well, rainbow. I'm thinking of the ray diagram, sorry. Kind, kind of. It, it reflects at an angle that's greater than 90 so let's say, let's say there were two rainbows. Let's say you're looking away from the sun and you're seeing the primary rainbow, which is forming in a normal bouncy way. And you look towards the sun and you'd see the secondary rainbow. Now imagine that because the secondary rainbow's angle is so great, imagine you're stretching that secondary rainbow out and you're making it bigger and bigger. Its radius gets bigger and bigger and it ends up getting wider and wider in the sky until it, covers, until it goes from east to west. It covers the whole top of the sky. It's the whole rainbow. It's that wide. And now imagine it keeps going. Imagine it keeps going to the other side of the horizon. The rainbow is bending backwards across the horizon until it matches with the rainbow on the other side of the sky. That's essentially what's happening. So the rainbow is still forming like a normal rainbow. It's just got such a big arc that it's bent round to the other side. And that's why the colours are reversed, because you're seeing the bottom of the rainbow at the top because it's shifted towards the other side of the sky because the angle it comes out the raindrop is so great. It's about 127 degrees. Mad. It's pretty mad. So that's what a secondary rainbow is. And they're quite rare. I mean, technically, every rainbow has a secondary rainbow because you're always getting a bit of double reflection, but seeing it is the hard part. Yeah. And that's kind of what the case is with most of these weird rainbows. Like, a lot of the time, they just they happen, but you just can't see them. And the, it's, it's rare to get the conditions where you can see them with the naked eye. The percentage of light that gets reflected off any surface is really low. It's really low, exactly. Uh, uh, so most surfaces. So um, that's, that's the deal with normal rainbows. And it's kind of cool to think that you can get the anti-solar point. But, but obviously, sometimes you might have seen pictures where you're seeing a full circle rainbow. How's that happening? That's another yeah. kind of rainbow. And, and now you knowing about the anti-solar point, Henry, you know that all rainbows are full circle rainbows. The question isn't, why is this a full circle rainbow? The question is, why isn't it covered up by the, by the ground? Yeah. Well, in order to see a full circle rainbow, you've got to get above the water you've got to get above the water droplets so you can see full circle rainbows when you're in a plane or when you're skydiving or when you're spraying a hose underneath your legs anytime where you are above the water droplets it's not being cut off by the ground and you can see a full circle rainbow because the yeah. anti-solar point is happening before it, it reaches the ground yeah so you're seeing it below you which is kind of cool 
and and that that's and then people that's super dope, it, actually it's super dope and it's not it's not as it's not as you know it, physically it's just the same as a regular rainbow but there are other rainbows which are, are weirder much much weirder in terms of their formation first you've got twinned rainbows a twinned rainbow is different from a secondary rainbow because a secondary rainbow is like a rainbow above your first rainbow yeah twinned rainbow is like a rainbow where at each end where it touches the horizon it's the same rainbow it pinches to a point but in the middle of the rainbow it spreads into two rainbows so it's like a double it's like two rainbows which sort of taper at and become the same rainbow as they hit the horizon it's like you've sort of grabbed the rainbow and like prized it open into two two slices yeah how have you managed that well that happens basically if you get different sizes of water droplets in the same area of sky coming from different fronts of low pressure then you're going to get one size of water droplet that sort of causes the reflection that leads to the first rainbow. And in amongst that, you've got a second size of water droplet, which is distinct enough that it causes an entirely separate rainbow just below it. Right. So that's, that, that's, that's just from weather patterns. And most of these are from just different sizes and arrangements of droplet. Right. And, and this can be called, he has these have weird names like Alexander's band and like Antoine's band. And these really strange sort of named by these 17th century dudes who like, had to travel up, you know, great mountains in the Alps on one day of a year in November when it was raining from the east or whatever to see these rainbows. And there's a whole rainbow hunting thing that was going on in, in the 1800s and they were trying to get theories of light going. And there's a really good example of, of one of these. Um, I can talk about it with supernumerary rainbows. So a supernumerary rainbow is different from all of these, even though it feels kind of the same. It's when you get like a sort of rainbow and then underneath it, You've got like little mini rainbows, like bands of rainbows that get fainter and fainter and fainter. It's like the rainbow has like a shadow or like a trail yeah. of like loads of different stripes coming out, right? That's, that's, that, that is due to another optical phenomenon, which is constructive interference or destructive interference. So when you get raindrops that are sort of a bit, bit small enough, basically, about one millimeter or less, and the smaller they are, the broader the droplets become, it means that there's not enough, it kind of means that there's not enough different angles you can get. So they start overlapping and you start getting a constructive interference band where you'll get a, a supernumerary shadow, a destructive yeah. where you'll get a gap, constructive where you'll get a secondary shadow and you get these little bands that go, go down. If you've got two colors of light and they go on top of each other, then if you think about the electric field of light, then it'll be at different values at different points along the light wave. So you basically add the two light waves together and you get a new light wave, which is a different color. Yeah. I mean, I, I, rainbows are, when you think about it, for someone who is an 18, 18th century physicist studying light, how like incredibly useful rainbows are is kind of taken for granted because like pretty much every optical phenomenon you can think of is, is necessary to make a rainbow. You've got interference, you've got refraction, you've got reflection, you've got diffraction, you've got dispersion. All these can be, all these were inferred by analyzing the different patterns that come from rainbows. It's basically a projection of something that you see in the sky that explains the physics of, of light with the electromagnetic field or tiny, tiny droplets that you can, you can't even see with your microscopes. Like the, 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 these, the about like, for example, Thomas Young in 1804, one of the first people to say that light behaved like a wave. He used supernumerary rainbows as his evidence. He said that this destructive interference, you know, this, this is indicative that light must be a wave of some kind. Uh, mm. And they, they, the loads and loads of rainbows were used to like figure out some of the equations for light and stuff like that. Like they're, they're incredibly useful tools. It was a significant point to make. Light was a wave at that time. So, you know, rainbows must have helped that argument a lot. There's another fun thing. 
uh, one of these early during the rainbow hunting days, um, someone also got into these huge debates um, because they had these calculation errors that were wrong from the, the rest of the, the school that, the, that they were competing with. And these, these series of papers went back and forth where the calculations in the equations were slightly different, slightly altered. This, this um, rainbow was supposed to have a wider radius and yeah. the, the, they were calculating it to have a smaller radius and they, they got quite heated. And then when the, uh, the physicist in question moved back to, to the university, which was away from the coast, he started seeing rainbows that were more in line with the calculations he was supposed to be getting. And now this is because near the sea, you get salt water in your water droplets and salt water has a different refractive index to fresh water. So the rainbows nice. around the sea have a slightly smaller radius and they're slightly more compacted than the rainbows you'll see out, out away from the coast. That's nice. So that, that, Never that thought explains about that. some fun calculation errors. Yeah, that, I mean, and you get you can get rainbows on other other planets as well. There's theories of extraterrestrial rainbows. I mm. mean, they don't even have to do with water. Anything that can act as a prism in any way. Yeah. I mean, just depends. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, potentially. I mean, in Titan, they they have potential infrared rainbows. Um, but you might need, you know, one might like infrared night vision goggles to see them. Theoretically, a rainbow can happen anywhere and anywhere in the universe. And now we're going to get to probably my favorite thing that rainbows can do. I think it's one of the last thing that rainbows can do that we really don't get. The, the, the best theory was published in 2005 and people don't don't really think it explains everything and they don't really like it. And they're trying really hard not to have to go to quantum to explain this rainbow. But oh, come on, grow up. Yeah, I know. I think this they, they should just get good. They should. They should. I don't want to do quantum I don't know. They're 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 scared. Okay, you can understand why they're scared. But um, this kind of gray, rainbow, which I, I think it's got a great name, it's called the mysterious glory, Henry, and it's also called the glory of pilots, which might give you a bit of a hint. Um, now this resembles resembles a halo of some kind you know it will form so that it's mainly seen if you fly on a plane and the shadow that you form on the clouds you have this massive majestic little halo of a rainbow that forms around you and that's called the glory or the glory of the pilot and you can see it in lots of places if you're in a mountain so it was seen by uh, ctl wilson when he was working at the ben nevis weather station he was one of the first people to see a glory um and it's apparently just kind of absolutely ridiculously pretty and the colors are all sort of muted and it, it just really bright it's ridiculously bright and it's it's really 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 rare like pretty much every time a glory is seen well it will there'll be a paper published about it because yeah. we don't really know how they form what's interesting is that the positioning of the shadow of the plane this is someone taking a picture out of a plane window of the plane of the shadow of their plane that they're currently in on the clouds below, and you get this sort of concentric circles of rainbow formed around the shadow of the yeah. Plane. But they're and very the thick position and misty. of these concentric circles is not dependent upon the shape of the plane. It's dependent yes. upon the positioning of the viewer. This is very weird, though. It's Fortnite. a bit of a Sherlock Holmes Agatha Christie plot twist, that isn't it? The reason it that the is, glory is always formed next to the shadow is because the sun's always you're behind always there. you when yeah. you're looking at it. So glories are formed when the sun's behind you and you're looking down on a rainbow. The sun shines down onto the clouds below, does a triple reflection mm-hmm. with light. If you're imagining light coming in and bouncing out the back, you might be imagining a little like a triangle shape that the light is making, right? It comes to a point at the back of the raindrop and then it comes out. 
try and imagine it more like you know how you draw a house if you're a child you've got the sort of triangle top and then the square that house yeah. shape parallel wave goes in bounces once bounces twice bounces again then comes straight back at you so it comes anti-parallel to where it was originally coming but this time it's split and because mm-hmm. your positioning with the brightest point is going to be a concentric circle directly below you and you know what that parallel thing makes sense maybe that's why the radius is so small uh-huh because it's, the it's, light it's, the light it's, isn't yeah. traveling very far from its original its original angle of the of quantum stuff is most interesting because i haven't touched that yeah. i honestly haven't it says that the largest contribution the largest contribution to the brightness or the formation of a glory isn't actually from light waves that strike the raindrops themselves. It's from light waves that pass very close within one <laughs> wavelength of the raindrops, then quantum tunnel through the raindrops, getting oh, reflected in the process oh. and going backwards towards your eye. And the probability function that describes the quantum tunneling will be different depending on the frequency of the light. Nice. In culture, it's been, it's been known for quite a while. So in China, you know, it's called Buddha's light. Often, like, you know, you've got the priests playing on top of the high mountains and in, in Huangshan or Mount Amen. And they, they, they see stuff like um, records of the phenomenon date back to 63 AD. So people have been seeing the glory in rather particular locations, which has, you know, sparked things like pilgrimages to see the great glory or whatever, you know, to see Buddha's light. And it's often been associated with like showing the observer's personal enlightenment. If you see Buddha's light, you're very lucky. Well, and also you're dedicated enough to climb a massive mountain. So you're clearly into the whole Buddha thing. Got quite a legacy. For example, stylized glories also appear in Western heraldry. So you got you got a couple of them on the Great Seal of the United States. And uh, interestingly, as I'm finally concluding, there is a glory surrounding the Eye of Providence, surmounting an unfinished pyramid on the Seal of the Illuminati, Henry. Surrounding Ooh. the tri the triangle. Uh, and is that, that actually that, on the logo, the Illuminati that's logo? That's the glory. That is a that is canonically a glory, a mysterious glory on the Illuminati logo. Oh, so they, they're the old Pink Floyd, and their suspicious triangle links back to the Illuminati through multiple rainbow shenanigans. Sam, do you believe in time travel? Yes. Uh, okay, what kind of time travel? Forward in time, slowly. Each individual ant is kind of very stupid. P for proton, which is 2.793 mu n, and mu n equal to negative 1.93 mu n, 1836. That was a rough podcasting there. <laughs> Jeez. And essentially, it's potential energy, like, like all things are. Pineapple eats you generate into a world of pain <laughs> okay 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 do people say the of okay okay uh, how are we doing this okay basically <laughs> and that's because the whole of Enceladus the whole moon is being squished and squashed by Saturn I'm gonna be honest it looks like the Death Star Sam have you heard of glass frogs oh yeah they're great no, you better not know this about glass frogs is it the thing that came out this week about why they're so see-through oh fuck <laughs> No, I think, I don't know, I don't know, Henry. Do we all have a Fantasia? Do you know what microtubules are? Uh, I mean, I can imagine. It's a, it's a small tubule, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, spot on, yeah. <laughs> you would have an electron field 
We're not yeah. experts. Let's just put it out here. Because we've been recently alerted by my mum that some of her physics professor friends may be <laughs> listening to this podcast. Um, and that that made us feel bad. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, Bert Henry's mum is always, is always crucial for a good podcast, I think. All right, Sam. Henry. You're listening to the Substandard Model.